In this life, there's so many things that don't make sense. Just turn the TV on and watch for a couple minutes and you'll know what I'm talking about. Up is down, left is right, right is wrong. I don't even need to give examples. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This world has lost its mind. And unfortunately, things are going to make less and less sense as we get closer to the end. And at some point in your life, if it hasn't happened already, you're going to find yourself in a situation that makes no sense. Something will happen that knocks you off your feet, leaves you dazed and confused, and it it may seem senseless, arbitrary, and completely by chance. Today we're going to look at the life of John the Baptist. And there's a lot of directions we can go with his story, but I want to focus on the part of his life where he was brought into a situation that didn't make sense. We're going to look at how he reacted and hopefully learn some lessons along the way. But before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you to be with us right now. Because honestly, Lord, without your presence, everything we're doing here today is pointless. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would move in a powerful way and may your message be heard and not mine. And Lord, if I've, pre- if I've prepared anything that is against your will, please, Lord, have me take it out. Or if there's anything you want me to add, please, Lord, impress me. May you be exalted and glorified. And, and we ask that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and that you would comfort us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When John the Baptist began his ministry, the nation of Israel found themselves once again under the rule of a heathen nation. And this was another iteration of this age-old cycle that Israel followed ever since its inception. And I've identified five stages of this cycle that Israel went through. Number one, they would have a, a time of prosperity. They would enjoy the blessings of God. Everything they did was successful. But then as time went on, they would forget about God, and they would slide into apostasy. And then... God would allow a heathen nation to come in and and oppress them and rule over them. And then number four, they would repent. They would have this time of repentance. They would be under this yoke of bondage of this nation, and they would return to God, confess their sins, and then God would graciously deliver them. So they had their five stages, prosperity, then apostasy, then oppression, then repentance, then deliverance, and it would start over. And when John the Baptist began his ministry, they were in the stage of oppression, with the Romans playing the part of the oppressors. They were afflicted by high taxes. The Romans were known for being especially cruel. And the people were tired of the hypocrisy and corruption of their own leaders. They were frustrated, beaten down both figuratively and physically. And they were looking for some kind of hope and deliverance. They were ripe to receive a message of repentance. The moral state of the Jewish society at that time left much to be desired. Many people were greedy. They had a love for luxury and display. They indulged their sensuous pleasures, feasting and drinking. 
And in light of all this, many of Israel's leaders maintained that they were God's special chosen people, when in many ways they were worse than their heathen oppressors. But there were also many honest people who were disgusted by what they saw around them. They were searching for truth, searching for hope, something more than their world could offer. They were ready for a message of repentance. And so here Israel is carrying this heavy burden of oppression, and God raises up John the Baptist to give the people a message that they're now ready to hear. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 3. And in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Desire of Ages, page 103 says, John saw his people deceived, satisfied, and asleep in their sins. He longed to rouse them to a holier life. The message that God had given him to bear was designed to startle them from their lethargy and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. Before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment, the soil of the heart must be broken up. Before they would seek healing from Jesus, they must be awakened to their danger from the wounds of sin. You know, sin has a way of numbing our senses, doesn't it? And we've, when we've been living in sin for a long time, we lose our ability to discern how bad it really is. I liken it to uh, someone who works with garbage. Have you ever been to the dump before? And when you, when you open the door of whatever car you're in, you're just hit in the face with this unbelievable stench. And I've always wondered as I'm there, like, how can people work here? But over time, as you're working there, you, you pro those people probably don't even notice it anymore. They're used to the stench. And that's what sin does. We become nose blind to it, if you will. And so God has to startle us. And shock us so that we can see what's really happening. And this is what John's message was. His mission was to preach the straight, hard truth. And I think it's important to point out here that we need to be careful how we present the truth. Because there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. You see, in one ditch, you have people that present only truth. You have people who beat you over the head with the truth. They, comes out, they come out guns blazing. They forcefully push the truth in and twist it like a knife. They use the truth as a weapon to discourage and cause harm. There's no grace, no compassion, no understanding, no come let us reason together. But in the other ditch, you have only Jesus, only love. But the love that's presented is a weak sentimentalism making little distinction between good and evil. In this ditch, there are people who in an effort to not hurt anybody's feelings, don't present the truth at all. Or at least they avoid the hard truths. They avoid the controversial truths. They present smooth things. The hearers of this message have no true sense of the seriousness of sin and therefore feel no need to confess or forsake it. They have no real conception of the holiness of God and have little understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. We must stay in the middle of the road here on this point. 
Desire of Ages 104 says, God, sends, God does not send messengers to flatter the sinner. He delivers no message of peace to lull the unsanctified into fatal security. He lays heavy burdens upon the conscience of the wrongdoer and pierces the soul with arrows of conviction. The ministering angels present to him the fearful judgments of God to deepen his sense of need and prompt the cry, What must I do to be saved? And if we stop there, we'd only have half of it. She continues, Then the hand that has humbled in the dust lifts up the penitent. The voice that has rebuked sin and put to shame pride and ambition inquires with tenderest sympathy, What will that I should do unto thee? You see, in order for God to help us, we must realize our need for Him. And in order to accomplish this, the truth must, presented, must be presented plainly, but with love and the compassion of Christ. And this is the message that John the Baptist was preaching. And God blessed John's ministry greatly. His message of repentance was spreading like wildfire. Thousands were convicted and repented and were baptized. Multitudes followed him wherever he went. There were many that thought he was, he was the Messiah. The religious leaders were jealous of him because all these people were leaving their synagogues and they were going into the wilderness to hear what John had to say. Even influential Roman um, leaders went to hear John's message and were convicted. And then... As the, 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 the highlight of John's ministry, Jesus finally comes to him and he's able to baptize Jesus. And John hears God's voice from heaven and sees the dove descending. <clears throat> this was the highlight of his life, to baptize the Savior of the world. Jesus begins his ministry and John is more than happy to watch from the sidelines and go back to a quiet life of obscurity. His work was done. His mission was complete. He had prepared the way for Jesus. Life was was good. But then things go sideways. Let's turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14 verses 3 and 4. It says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So here John is. He just finished this wonderful work that he did for God. And then this happens. He faithfully rebuked sin, like he had always done throughout his whole life. And now he finds himself in a Roman prison. Roman prisons were not pleasant places. They were filthy. They were underneath the ground. Dark, poorly ventilated, hot, and had the stench of various bodily fluids. The prisons were very crowded. Large groups of prisoners were chained together and put in the same room. Their prisons were designed to strip the prisoner of all their dignity. They were designed to physiologically and, and psychologically torture a prisoner into confessing. They were designed to be a place that was worse than death. And this was all to deter crime. And honestly, that makes sense. But can you imagine being in a place like this for weeks and months? You see, John was used to freedom he was used to the fresh mountain air with lots of room to roam. He was used to hearing the babbling stream just outside his tent. Used to waking up to a cloudless sky with birds chirping. Everywhere he looked, he saw the beauty of God's creation. But now, here he is, languishing in this filthy, rotten prison cell. 
perhaps listening to the coughing and wheezing of sick and diseased prisoners, the constant stench of who knows what, waking up in the middle of the night to the squealing and screeching of rats, not even able to see the sun. But as the weeks pass, and John's situation doesn't change, discouragement and doubts begin to creep in. God, why didn't you prevent this from happening? Surely you could have. Surely I'd be more used to you out of prison than here inside. Was this situation somehow my fault? Was I unfaithful in some way? God, are you still here? I dedicated my life to you. Are you just going to leave me here in this rat-infested dungeon? I wonder if he had moments where he regretted saying what he did to Herodias. Or to Herod, I mean. I know I would have. Why didn't I just keep my mouth shut? Maybe is that why God's allowed me to be put in here? All these questions. You see, his situation didn't make sense. Maybe you're sitting here today, and life doesn't make sense. Maybe something has just happened in your life that's taken you completely off guard. Something has turned your life upside down. You finally settled down. You have great friends, wonderful church family, a nice house. Your kids are in a great school. Life is comfortable, but then God makes it clear He wants you to pack up and move to some place you've never heard of before. Why, God? Life is just starting to slow down for us, and now this doesn't make sense. You love your job. doesn't doesn't even seem like work to you. You've been there for 20 years. You worked your way up from the bottom, but you come in one day and find out they, that you've been let go. No reason. They just don't need you anymore. And now you have to figure out how you're going to put food on the table for your family. God, what's going on? Did I do something wrong? This doesn't make sense. You go in for a routine checkup. When the doctor comes back in the room, you can tell by the look on his face that something's not right. And now your worst fears have become your reality. And you're faced with the realization that you might not be around to see your kids grow up. How does this fit into your plan, God? My kids need me doesn't make sense. You get a phone call from a family member and they say there's been a terrible accident. Just like that, they're gone. You just gave them a hug this morning. And if if you'd known it had been the last hug, you would have never let go. Now your world is shattered. Is this your will, God? Why did you take them from me? Why couldn't the car have just been two feet to the right? You could have stopped it. Why not? Why didn't you? doesn't make sense. At some point in your life, you will find yourself in a situation that makes no sense. It's not a matter of if, but when. Jesus said in Matthew, in John 16, 33, it says, In this world, you what? You will have tribulation. Not might, you will. Many people are under this impression that once they become a Christian, life is all unicorns and butterflies. It's not the case. And when these kinds of things happen, it often sends our minds spiraling out of control. And as we sit there, Looking at the broken pieces of our life, we question things we were once certain of. We question God. We question His wisdom. We question His love for us. We question ourselves. We question our beliefs and our motives. We question everything. What do you do when it doesn't make sense? Desire of Ages, page 214 says, John's disciples did not forsake him. They were allowed access to the prison, and they brought him tidings of the works of Jesus and how the people were flocking to him. But they questioned, why? If this new teacher was the Messiah, why did he did nothing to affect John's release? How could he permit his faithful herald to be deprived of liberty and perhaps life? These questions were not without effect. 
Doubts which otherwise would have never arisen were suggested to John. Satan rejoiced to hear the words of these disciples and see how they bruised the soul of the Lord's messenger. When we have a friend or a family member that's going through a crisis, we need to be very careful what we say to them. Our words are powerful. They can make or break someone, especially when they're in a crisis. You know, this same thing happened to Job. Remember when all those terrible things happened in his life? What did his closest friends and even his wife say to him? They said it was because of him. Can you imagine thinking that your kids died because of something you did? We must speak words of faith and not doubt. Like many Jews in that day, John misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. You see, John expected Jesus as the Messiah to take the throne of David, to lead a revolution to overthrow the Romans, and usher in an era of peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel, and to hopefully break him out of prison at some point in that process. So you can imagine John's confusion when his disciples are reporting that Jesus is spending his time traveling from town to town, healing the sick, preaching to the poor, and teaching in synagogues. This doesn't seem like the type of things that the Messiah should be doing. Is Jesus really the Messiah then? I know all, the, all these prophecies point to him, but so he should be rallying the troops and, and talking to the leaders of Israel, but why is he spending his time doing all these other things? If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then what does that mean for my life's work? Did I just waste my whole life? Finally, John sends his disciples to try to set the, set the record straight. John wants to hear directly from the horse's mouth, who does Jesus say he is? Now imagine this mighty man of faith. Just a short time before, he looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. But now, here he is, doubting what he once was sure of. Questioning the most basic tenets of his faith. It's amazing what crisis can do to our minds. Trials tend to expose any weakness when someone is going through a crisis, you see who they really are. You see what their faith is really made of. What do you do when it doesn't make sense? In Desire of Ages, page 216, it says, John longed for some word from Christ spoken directly for himself. In his crisis of faith, he was looking for some special personal sign, some miracle or some personal message just for him. In other words, he wanted a direct, personal revelation. I remember one time when, when I was in a faith crisis. I remember asking God, I said, God, if you want me to do this, then have this yellow Lamborghini drive beside me right now. I wanted God to speak directly to me. I wanted him to tell me exactly what to do. I wanted a direct, personal revelation. Have you ever asked for something like that? You don't have to raise your hands, but I'm sure many of us have. So John sends his disciples to Jesus. Let's turn to Luke 7, starting at verse 20. Luke 7, verse 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus does something very interesting in response to this question. He doesn't respond. He doesn't answer their question. Let's, let's read verse 21. He said, And at that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus, just kind of, I imagine he just looked at them and then just kind of went back to what he was doing. I imagine what they were thinking. They were like, they may have been, did he hear us? Desire of Ages 2.17 says, Thus the day wore away, the disciples of John seeing and hearing all. That kind of tells me that it was probably hours that Jesus ignored them. 
Jesus could have easily said, yep, I'm your guy, I'm the Messiah. Go tell John. But why does Jesus do this? He just ignores him. He had to have known John's mental state at this point. He had to have known that John was going through a crisis of faith, but here Jesus is just kind of, it seems like he's just lollygagging and doesn't really care. But he does. And I think Jesus does this for a very specific reason. Nothing Jesus does is arbitrary. Everything he does has a purpose. Let's read verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, this is, this is after the, the long day of them just kind of sitting there waiting. Jesus says, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus, all he says is, Go tell John what you saw. No special personal instruction, no special revelation or sign or miracle. And when John's disciples come back and tell John, it immediately reminded him of a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So what was Jesus doing? Why didn't he give them a direct answer? He did not want John's faith to be based on some personal revelation. Jesus pointed John back to Scripture. That was why. What's wrong with direct personal revelation? Well, let's go to Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. What is a sign? What is, what is meant when people talk about a sign? What were, the, what were the Pharisees asking for? A miracle. Now, wasn't Jesus known for his miracles? So what was Jesus saying then? Why does he say that a wicked generation seeks after a sign? You see, the Pharisees wanted a direct personal revelation. And we have to be careful here because Satan can easily counterfeit the work of God, can't he? 2 Corinthians 11.4 says, No wonder Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel of light. Satan does a lot of work in the realm of personal revelation under the guise of genuine messages from God. Second selected message is 98. There will be false dreams and false visions which have some truth, but lead away from the original faith. The Lord has given men a rule by which to detect them. And then she quotes Isaiah 8, verse 20. She says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, what? It is because what? There's no light in them. So what's the test? Is it, if it's supernatural, then it's good? No. Does it line up with the revealed revelation of God? If they belittle the law of God, notice, they may not outright reject the law of God. That's an important point here because some people minimize the law of God. They, they don't say, oh, the law of God is done away with. They just, they don't, they don't really put much emphasis on it. If they belittle the law of God, and two, if they pay no heed to his will as revealed in the testimonies of his spirit, they are deceivers. They are controlled by impulse and impressions, which they believe to be from the Holy Spirit. Notice that they are deceivers and yet deceived at the same time. You know, a lot of times we think if someone is a deceiver, they know exactly what they're doing. 
But it's possible for us to be deceivers but not know it. They consider more reliable than the inspired word. They, they, cons- they are controlled by impulse and impressions and they believe this to be from the Holy Spirit and consider this more reliable than the inspired word. When I read this, it makes me think of a certain group in this area. And someone personally told me that one of their leaders in this group, they said, and I'm paraphrasing, but they said, I haven't read my Bible in weeks, but I don't really need to because I have the Holy Spirit speaking directly to me. Where was their faith being placed? On direct personal revelation. This is extremely dangerous, friends. She goes on to say in, in uh, Second Selected Messages, 98, she says, they claim that every thought and feeling is an impression from the Spirit. And when they are reasoned with out of the Scriptures, they declare that they have something more reliable. But while they think they are led by the Spirit of God, they are in reality following an imagination wrought upon by Satan. That's, how deceptive is that? This is the danger of basing our faith on personal revelation, on our experiences, on our feelings, on our impressions. Those things change, and Satan can easily counterfeit. And this is why Jesus warned us about seeking for a sign. This is Satan transforming himself into an angel of light. This is spiritualism. Now, does God ever give us direct personal revelation? Yes, he does, absolutely. I've had precious times where I believe that the Holy Spirit has spoken directly to me. We've all heard of or have seen miracles in in our lives or the lives of others. God does give personal revelation, but God doesn't want us to base our faith on that. He doesn't want us to base our faith on these supernatural encounters and revelation. God wants us to base our faith on his word. Now, I'm not saying that John was putting his faith in his personal revelation, but that was his temptation. When life doesn't make sense, when tragedy hits, we naturally want something we can touch and feel and see. We want something tangible, don't we? When our life is in shambles, like John, we want a word from Jesus spoken directly to us. And sometimes Jesus does let us feel his presence. But what do you do when you feel nothing? What do you do when it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? What do you do when your face is on the floor and you can't even breathe and you're literally crying out to God, pleading for something, anything, but all you hear is silence? What do you do then? Several years ago, I was going through a faith crisis in my life, and I've, I've never shared this experience publicly, but maybe there's someone here that needs to hear it. But I was struggling with a very important life decision, and this whole ordeal lasted on and off I don't know, for about a year, maybe a little longer. And I'm kind of a reserved, quiet person, so I tend to just deal with stuff and figure it out on my own. But I remember worrying about it so much that my stomach would almost constantly be in knots. And I, would, I told my mom that my stomach was bothering me, and she even bought this powdered clay that I would mix with water to, to drink to hopefully help my stomach, but it didn't work. And for a while, it was just me worrying about this thing, and I remember the exact moment when it switched from being like a mental, emotional battle to a decidedly spiritual battle. One evening, I was randomly invited to an interfaith meeting. There was a a Jewish rabbi there, a Muslim sheikh, a Baptist preacher, and I think it was a Catholic preacher. It may have been a Lutheran, a Catholic priest. Um, But it was at a community center, and, and it was in one of the conference room. 
And I'd say there was about 100 to 150 people in that room. And they were having a panel discussion, and they were discussing life after death. They were essentially saying the same thing. They, they had minor differences, but they were all essentially saying that when you die, you eventually go to heaven or hell. Now, at this time, I was studying religion at Adventist, Southern Adventist University. And one of my classes, we had literally just talked about 1 Thessalonians 4. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. So it was fresh in my mind. And so I knew that what they were saying was unbiblical. So as they're discussing, I'm thinking about the response, the biblical response to it. And at the end of the discussion, they open it up for questions. So I raise my hand, and they don't call on me. They call on several other people. And it goes for about 20 minutes. And finally, at the end, the, the moderator finally says, Okay, we're gonna, we have time for one more question. And so all the hands go up, and he scans the room, and lo and behold, he, he calls on me. Well, now I'm terrified. These super smart guys are staring at me. These 150 people in the room are staring at me. And so I stand up, and with a trembling voice, I say, So it seems like you're all in agreement that there is some form of life immediately after death. But I want to hear your thoughts on a couple different verses. And then I bring up Ecclesiastes. I say, Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 to 17 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then I say, as you can see, Scripture clearly teaches that when we die, we know nothing. And then 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 refers to death as a sleep, and that the dead in Christ will be brought back to life when Jesus returns, and they'll meet the Lord in the air at the same time with the living. Therefore, it's clear that we do not immediately go to heaven or hell when we die, but we wait in our graves for the return of Jesus. And when I finish, I kid you not, every single person in that room audibly gasped. Oh! And I look up, and the, the, the moderators are starting to squirm in their seats. And obviously, the Holy Spirit was there convicting hearts. And uh, obviously, yeah, God was there. But after a few seconds, the Baptist preacher says something about how the souls come back from heaven and come back into the resurrected bodies. And I was trying to respond to him, but the moderator cut me off. But looking back, I know that I must have made the powers of darkness pretty upset at that point because there was a lot of people there that maybe that was the first time they ever heard that. But that night, as I started thinking about my life decision again, a strange darkness settled over me. Not a literal darkness, but I began to feel a heaviness that I hadn't felt before. I began to feel like God had forsaken me. And this was all new. I felt like I did something wrong, and now God wasn't going to help me. And, and, and now it seems silly to be having these dark, foreboding thoughts about a decision, but now I know the true nature of it. But back then, I didn't know what was happening. And as the weeks went by, this strange, heavy cloud would often settle over me. And every time, I would have these terrible, intrusive thoughts. Have you ever had intrusive thoughts before? It seems like someone else is in your brain talking to you. And so it felt like these were someone else's thoughts, but, but it felt like my thoughts, too, 
And, and looking back, maybe it, maybe it was somebody else. But I would argue with these thoughts and try to reason them out. And I would go down these big rabbit holes and just follow these arguments down the hole. And I would just be often distant and lost to what was kind of happening around me. I would be distant in conversation. I, I, I would be preoccupied. And in these moments, I would always wonder, is this God or is this Satan? Or, or is it my own thoughts? And, and when it would get bad enough, I would frantically open the Bible and pray and beg to God that I would read something that would help, but often there was no answer. It felt like I was being attacked. But somehow I was under the impression that it was God doing it. And most times it felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. At one, to- at one point I remember being in the McKee Library and I was studying. And I remember sitting in the chair, my head in my hands. And I, I had been feeling the heaviness and darkness that whole day. And it was just getting worse and worse. And I was just, I remember had my hoodie on so no one would see me. And I was just, had my head and I was just kept praying, God, help me, God, God, please and I, I don't know if it was a vision or what, but I sensed two angels fighting in front of me. It was just kind of like a flash. And then a few seconds later, I only saw one, and it was standing guard just to my right. And I don't know if I was just going crazy or what, but that's what I saw. And immediately the darkness was gone. I, 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 the, the heaviness, I felt a physical weight lifted, and I'm like, thank you, God, please. And I remember plead. I said, God, please don't leave me. Please, please, please don't, don't leave me. And, and I, I was hiding my face frantically trying to wipe my eyes because imagine trying to explain that to somebody. I didn't want anybody to talk to me. But before long, maybe a day or so, the same dark, heavy cloud would return. The terrible thoughts would resume. And again, I'd be questioning, is this you, God? Is this Satan or is this my own thoughts? And, and I just had a miraculous deliverance. And and here I am doubting again, unbelieving, questioning. And I would often wonder if it was just all in my head. Am, am, I, am I literally going crazy? Am I bipolar or something? Well, I was accepted into a clinical pastoral education program up in Kettering, Ohio. And essentially what I was doing there was learning how to be a hospital chaplain. And at Southern, I had a lot of things to distract me from what was going on inside. But here at Kettering, I had a lot of free time. And I always tell people that Kettering was the worst experience and the best experience of my life. And I'll explain why. But I would get out of these classes and our, and our clinicals in the afternoon, and then I would just essentially have the whole rest of the day free. And, and things got worse. The darkness got deeper. The heaviness was suffocating. I had multiple nights where I had sleep paralysis. I would wake up. I would be conscious, but I couldn't move. I remember being jolted awake not by something visible, but I, I knew that something was charging at me, and that's why I woke up. It was terrifying. I had these terrible nightmares, and I, and I was all alone. Felt like I couldn't really talk about, it, talk about it to anyone because I didn't want to be put in a psych ward. Keep in mind that many people are dealing with stuff that you have no idea about. We need to be careful how we, how we relate to people. But at times, the Lord would bless me with His presence. And I, it's impossible to express how much I cherish those moments. The darkness would flee immediately. I would see and feel the stark contrast be- between God's presence and what I was dealing with. And I would, in, in that moment, when God was there with me, I could say, how could I ever question that, this, that what I'm dealing with is you, God? This is you. I remember one time I was enjoying his presence, and I, re- I remember feeling him backing away and, and leaving. I said, 
don't, don't go, God. Don't leave me, please. Please stay. But then later, maybe the same day, the darkness would return, and those intrusive thoughts whispered, that wasn't God, that was a manic episode. And it would steal my joy. It would rob me of my experience with God. And finally, I got to the point where I had enough. I was sick and tired of the roller coaster. Every single day for weeks and months, the darkness would settle sometimes multiple times a day, and God would give me just enough of his presence to keep me hanging on. And there were many times where I thought about just ending it. Many times I questioned and literally shouted at God, God, what are you doing? What's your problem? Are you enjoying this? Are you toying with me? Doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? But things started to change when I started reading Psalms. But one day I just started reading Psalms. And if, if you've read Psalms, you'll, you'll see many Psalms where David follows the whole gambit of emotions, even just in one Psalm. At the beginning, he's an abject despondency, utterly inconsolable. But then a few verses later, he's praising God for his presence and goodness and deliverance. You know, in Psalm 13, in verse 1, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then in verse 6, he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Before this experience, I would look at those psalms and I'm like, this guy has to be schizophrenic. But after my experience, I totally get it. But as I kept reading Psalms, I noticed something that David did that I was not doing. He praised and worshiped and thanked God in the middle of the darkness. At his lowest point, when the whispers of demons tortured his soul, when death was knocking at the door, before God intervened, he praised him. He didn't wait until he could see clearly. He didn't wait until the storm had passed. He didn't wait until it all made sense. David knew that his Savior loved him, and circumstances could never change that. How did he know? He knew because of how the Lord had led him in the past. We have nothing to fear for the future, except we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in the past. You see, as David looked back at his life, he could see how God guided and protected and provided for him. And David knew from experience that the Lord keeps his promises. David knew that if God says something, he's going to do it. End of story. He had experienced it in his own life. And this is what David clung to in those dark moments. This is why he praised God in the middle of it. Another thing David did that I wasn't doing was waiting on the Lord. If you read Psalms, so many times he talks about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, he says, Wait on the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still in the presence of the Lord, wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked scream, schemes. Psalm 38, 15, But you, O Lord, do I wait. For you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. I was not good at waiting. When I was going, when I was sitting there in this darkness and heaviness, I would be freaking out, vacillating back and forth between faith and unbelief. Here was David's recipe for success. When he was plunged into uncertainty, when crisis came, he, number one, praised God in the darkness. Number two, he remembered God's leading in his past. Three, by faith he claimed the promises of God and expected their fulfillment without wavering. And number four, he waited patiently. 
You see, for me, up until that point, I would save my praise until after the darkness left. I would doubt and forget God's leading in my past. And, And although I would read the Bible, I didn't really have a purpose. Many times I just grabbed it and let's go here. But David had a purpose for the word of God. It was practical. He had these promises of God and he claimed those. The next time when that old familiar dark cloud settled on me, I started using David's method. I I prayed to God and I said, God, right now it feels like you've turned your back on me. It feels like you're disgusted with me and that you've forsaken me. Your word tells me differently. Your word tells me that you love me. Your word tells me that I'm the apple of your eye. Your word says in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God, I don't feel it right now, but Lord, you promised that you would never leave me or forsake me. Or forsake me. In Psalm 34, you said, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Lord, even though I feel like you've forsaken me, even though there are demons whispering lies about you in my ear, I will choose to believe what you say. I will remember your leading in my past. You've promised deliverance. You cannot lie. And I thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do for me. Not because I feel it, but because you said so. And now, Lord, I will wait for your deliverance. When I prayed this prayer, I didn't always get deliverance immediately. Sometimes that darkness would stay there. But something was different when I prayed that prayer of faith. When there was a long wait... And this darkness kept pushing. I began to notice that God would guard my heart. And and it's hard to explain what I'm trying to say when I say that. But even though I was in the middle of that storm, even though the discouragement and the heaviness was suffocating, and there was darkness around me, I had this weird strength. I, I wouldn't be vacillating, going back and forth between faith and unbelief. You see... What was happening in my, in my life, in my heart, was my faith was beginning to transition from being on my feelings to being on the Word. And as I've reflected on this experience, I can see now that this is why God allowed this to happen. He was trying to teach me to rely on His Word rather than what I was going through, my feelings. Because they're two different things. Faith and feeling are, I would say, completely opposite. And for so long, my standing before God was dictated by how I felt. If I didn't feel it, then it wasn't true. I wasn't walking by faith. I was walking by sight. And the thing about feelings is that they change all the time. And if our religious experience is based on our feelings, it's going to be a rough ride. Our feet will be firmly planted in midair. Our faith must be based on the unchanging Word of God. And when I learned to place my faith on His promises... Rather than my feelings, that's when things started to change. We took a lengthy transition there, but let's get back to John for a minute. I believe this is what Jesus was doing with John. Jesus pointed John back to his word. Jesus wanted John's faith to be based on his word, not on some direct personal revelation, not on his feelings. After John's disciples related to him what Jesus said, and after John made the connection to the, the, the prophecy in Isaiah, Zara of Ages 1, uh, 2.18 says, understanding more clearly now the nature of Christ's mission. How did he understand it more clearly? By doing what? By going back to Scripture. After he understand more clearly Christ's mission, he yielded himself to God for life or for death. His circumstances hadn't changed. He was still in that filthy dungeon, but something else changed. 
he had found an inner strength that was completely separate and distinct from his circumstances. Many people, me included, have looked at the story of John the Baptist and they say, how could God let this happen to John? How could God leave John in that lonely, well, it wasn't lonely, there's a bunch of people there, that stinky dungeon, and leave him there to die? Zara of Ages 2.24 says, Gladly would Jesus have delivered his faithful servant. Listen closely. But for the sake of thousands who in after years must pass from prison to death, John was to drink the cup of martyrdom. As the followers of Jesus should languish in lonely cells or perish by the sword, apparently forsaken by God and man, what a stay to their hearts would be the thought that John the Baptist, whose faithfulness Christ himself had borne witness, had passed through a similar experience. We have tunnel vision sometimes, don't we? When we're going through something, all we can see, we can't even see past our nose sometimes. But God knows, he knew the tough times that his followers were going to go through not long after he left the earth, right? And when I read this, it really put things in perspective. Maybe the trial you're going through right now is for the benefit of someone else. Maybe God is going to use your experience to encourage someone else who's going through the same thing. Though no miraculous deliverance was granted John, he was not forsaken. He had always the companionship of heavenly angels who opened to him the prophecies concerning Christ and the precious promises of Scripture. And these were his stay. As they were to be the stay of God's people through the coming ages. To John the Baptist, as to those who came after him, was given the assurance, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John never got all the answers. He never got, I'd say he never got most of the answers. He died without ever seeing the fruits of his labor. He never saw Jesus healing the sick. He never saw Jesus raising the dead. He never saw Jesus casting out demons, preaching the good news to the poor. Likewise, you and I may never understand why. It may never make sense to us. And are we okay with that? I think that everything I've said today can be boiled down to this. When life doesn't make sense, do we trust in the Lord with all our heart? Or do we lean on our own understanding? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, there are some here today who are in a crisis of faith. Nothing makes sense. They don't understand your leading. They don't understand why you would allow this. They don't see how this could be your will. But Lord, one thing we do understand is that you love us more than we could ever imagine. And we know from your word that you will never leave us or forsake us. And circumstances or feelings can never change this. We thank you for your unchanging word, Lord, and help us to build our faith upon it, not our feelings. And Lord, we may never have all the answers, but Lord, we look forward to the day when we will gather around your throne and you will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. But until then, Lord, we walk by faith and not by sight. We thank you for hearing this prayer, Lord, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.